For those of you who are new or visiting, we've been just working our way through the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And much in Genesis 1 through 11, if you've not been with us, has been about how everything has really gone wrong. God created everything and he made it very good. But starting in Genesis chapter 3 and all the way through chapter 11, with very few exceptions, this story has been dominated by failure, by sin, by unbelief. It's been a lot of bad news. We've seen the unbelief of Adam and Eve as they doubted the word of God. They ate from the tree. They disobeyed his word. We've seen the unbelief of Cain as he grows angry with his brother Abel and he turns to violence and he kills. He kills someone who was made in the image of God. We saw a brief spark of, of faith in the life of Noah. Noah hears the word of the Lord. He's a righteous man and he obeys God's command. But even Noah's faith is followed by failure. Not long after exiting the ark, we find Noah drunk and exposed in his tent and his youngest son, Ham, dishonoring and shaming his father, resulting once again in cursing. We've seen unbelief last week in the new society after the flood, the people at Babel. They had this ambition for their own glory. Let's make a city and let's make a tower for our name. They rejected God's directive, which was to go throughout the earth, to be fruitful, multiply, to subdue the earth, and they, they drove their stake into the ground there at Babel. And so God judged them, and he scattered them, confused their languages. The result of all of this unbelief, all of this sin at the personal level, at the family level, and at the society level has been cursing. Man works and lives under the curse. He tills and, and plants in a cursed ground. Woman labors under the curse. She brings life into the world, but not without pain. She is in relationship with her husband, but not without conflict. The first society was destroyed by the flood. Everyone was wicked. They did only and always what was evil. So the first society is destroyed by the flood. The second society at Babel was confused and scattered because of their selfish and proud ambitions. As you read through chapters 3 through 11, you really start wondering, is there any hope for the human race? Because it really does almost seem hopeless, doesn't it? There's this unending cycle of sin and unbelief and cursing and judgment. But against this dark backdrop of cursing, as we turn to chapter 12, it's not only a new chapter in the pages of our Bible, but it's a new chapter in human history. It's a new chapter in what God is doing in his creation. Against the dark backdrop of cursing, we find a startling promise of blessing and an amazing display of faith. I'd like to read for you just the first few verses. We'll go all the way through uh, verse 9, but I'm just going to read the first few to begin with. This is God's word to us this morning. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord 
had told him. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. We are thankful this morning. We are filled with gratitude to think that you would love us and show us such mercy and such grace, that you would desire to have a relationship with us and that you would sacrifice your own son to bring it to pass. Lord, we ask that you would increase our love for you this morning, increase our love for your word, increase our love for one another. We pray that you would expand and deepen our joy as we catch a glimpse of who you are and what you're doing in the world. We ask, God, that as we catch a glimpse of you, that our hearts would be thrilled, that we would leave this place with a sense of awe and wonder at all that you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray now that your spirit would open our eyes to see and open our hearts to receive the truth of your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 12 is a major, major shift in the biblical narrative. It's a shift from a global focus. We've been looking at the history of the human race. It's a shift from a global focus and perspective down to a narrow focus, a narrow focus of one man and this one man's family. It's a shift also from cursing to blessing, and it's a shift from the repeating cycle of sin and judgment to a forward-moving story of redemption, redemption that is based on the promise of God. From this point on, the history of God's dealing with the world will be founded upon these universe-changing, universe-shaping promises. Upon these promises, in Genesis chapter 12, hangs not only the destiny of Abram, but also the history of the nation Israel, and even more than that, the church, your and my salvation. Even at this stage of history, the lesson is clear. The point this morning is that salvation comes through faith in the promises of God. Salvation comes through faith in the promises of God. This is true in the story that unfolds here in Genesis chapter 12. We see it emerge as we trace the story of Abram, but it's also true in our lives as well. Not just for Abram, but also for you and for me. Salvation comes through faith in the promises of God. Before we dive into chapter 12, I want to back up just a little bit to set the context. In chapter 11, we are introduced to this character. He's a new character in the story, a man named Abram. You know him probably as Abraham, and I'll probably call him that a couple times today, but it's the same person, so we all know who we're talking about. Abram, who would later be renamed Abraham, and he is the descendant of Shem. Shem is the son of Noah. Noah is the descendant of Seth, that third son of Adam and Eve. And if you've been with us over the last several weeks, you've seen that this is the blessed line. This is the chosen line, that God's blessing from the world would come through Seth, through Noah, through Shem, and the descendant of Shem is this man, Abram. And that's the point of the genealogy. We didn't take time to read it, but in chapter 11, we see the, the generations of, of Shem, starting in verse 10. Shem is that third son, or sorry, the first son of Noah. And it goes through all the way through his descendants to eventually we get to verse 27. We're introduced to a man named Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. And we read the story of Terah and his family. We see that in verse 29 that Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, who would later be renamed Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, 
the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is the new character, Abram, descendant of Shem through Noah, eventually the son of Terah. Now we're told that this man, Abram, lived in a place called Haran with his wife, Sarai. Sarai was childless. She had no children. She was barren. Keep that detail in mind. It will become important later. And he lived there with his father, Terah. They had started migrating from a land called Ur, and they had moved westward and southward towards Canaan. But they had settled in a place called Haran, and they had stayed there. And eventually, Terah had died there. Abram had a nephew named Lot, who also was with him. He'll be significant later as well. And then we get to chapter 12. The context has been set. And after all of this very normal stuff, you know, children, grandchildren, wives, sometimes no children, living in certain places, some people dying, some people marrying, all very normal details. And then something very extraordinary happens. After all this normal stuff, something amazing happens as we enter into chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram. Derek Kidner writes that the history of redemption, like that of creation, begins with God speaking. God speaks. The God who spoke light into darkness back in chapter 1 now speaks blessing into a cursed world. The principle here is that God is the gracious initiator of the promise. Salvation comes through faith in the promises of God. But this promise comes based on the gracious initiation of God. He takes the first step towards man. Abram is here, minding his own business, living in Haran, and God speaks. It's significant that God initiates this conversation unsolicited. It is God's sovereign and gracious choice to enter into history and speak to this man. At this point, nothing has been said about Abram walking with or serving God. Nothing's been said about Abram calling on the name of the Lord, about him being righteous. In fact, later in the book of Joshua, it tells us that Abram and his father, Terah, they actually worshiped idols. These were pagans. They were not God-fearers in the sense that they would later become. Joshua 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Abram was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper, and God speaks. He speaks to him. We ask the question, why would God choose Abram? Why would he choose this man who worshiped idols? Well, it's the same reason he chooses any of us to be his children. It's because he's a gracious God, and he delights to show his grace and his love and his mercy to people who have not earned it, to people who do not deserve it. And we see that this grace is not just grace towards Abram, it's going to mean grace for the whole world. Look at what God said in 1 through 3. He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse, get this, and in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed going to mean blessing for Abraham, 
when God speaks, and it's going to mean blessing for the world. I want to look carefully here at what God says to Abraham. First, we see that God gives him one singular command. He tells Abraham to do one thing. He says, go. Go, in verse 1. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Where is he supposed to go? To a land. Undefined, unnamed as of yet. It's a place that God says he would show him. Abraham, you just start going. I'll show you where to go. I'll tell you when we get there. No other information is given. No details, no hints, no directions. It says, go to a land that I will show you. Now, the fact that God tells him to go to a land is not insignificant. If you've been with us through our study of Genesis, we've already seen that land, that place, is important. Remember Eden? Eden was the place of blessing. It was the place where God walked with Adam and Eve. It was the place where the tree of life was, and it was the place that they were driven out of because of their sin. Remember the banishment of Cain? Because of his sin, he was exiled. He was sent away from the place where he was. Blessing and place are tied together. Remember the pattern we saw back in 1 and 2 and 3, this pattern of the kingdom of God that it's God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing. That's the pattern of the kingdom. So place, a land, is important. God had sent Adam and Eve away. He had sent Cain away, but now he invites Abram to come to a place. It's the reversal of what happened in Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. But the going will not be easy, will it? To go, to to obey God's singular command is going to require obedience. It's going to require dependence. It's going to require some risk. It's going to require leaving what is familiar and comfortable. He says, go from your country. You know, we have some people with us this morning who are far from their home country. It's hard to go to a new place. It's hard to go to a place where everything's new and the language is different and the culture is different and the weather is different and the the geography is different. Everything is different. He says, go from your country. And he says, go from your kindred. Some of you are far from home in the sense that family is not close by. That's hard. It says, go from your father's house, your most intimate relationships, from the place where you would have a great inheritance. Everything that Terah had amassed would be Abram's. But he says, go from all of that. Going will not be easy. He's going to head towards something unknown, something unfamiliar. There's risk here. But it's not a suggestion. Going is a command given with the authority of God. So this is not only a risk, it's also a test of sorts. Where will Abram's allegiance be? He had worshipped idols, but now the living God has spoken to him and said, go. How will he respond? But it's not simply a naked command. This singular command is followed by an incredible promise. Abram must go. He must act. He must obey. But God is also going to do something. God is also going to act. God makes a promise five times declaring what he will do. He says, go to a land that I will show you. He says, I will bless you. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who dishonor you. And he says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says, you must go, but I am going to do something. 
And the emphasis here, overwhelmingly so, is on the action and the activity of God. And what God is going to do is going to bring both personal and global blessing. Blessing is the theme here. This word blessing or blessed appears five times in these few short verses. And this is incredibly encouraging, isn't it? It's incredibly encouraging because the cursing that is so prevalent in chapters 3 through 11, God says that cursing will not prevail. That cursing, that judgment is not the end of the story. Look at what God says. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Nationhood requires a population. Nationhood implies a government. Nationhood implies a territory. All of that goes together. God says, I'm going to do that for you and through you. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. A bright promise of grace. He says, I'm going to make your name great. Now, that should ring a bell with us. Remember last week in chapter 11, the people tried to build a city and a tower for their name, right? And we saw that that selfish human ambition for our own glory leads to judgment. You know who it is that makes men great? It's not us. It's God. God says, Abram, you don't have to make yourself a great name. I'm going to do that for you. It depends not on the effort of man, but on the effort of God. Honor and glory and fame is not to be achieved through human effort. It's to be received from the hand of God as a gracious gift. To make his name great is more than just being famous. This is actually royal language. We see this in Genesis 17. As it is said that that through Sarai, Abram's wife, there would be kings who were born. This is regal language. The Hittites would later, later call Abram a prince. When God speaks later to King David, he says, I'm going to make your name great. When we get into the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, what's the great promise that God says he is doing, that the Father is doing for his son, Jesus Christ, bestowing upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. To make someone's name great is royal language. And God says, Abram, I'm going to do this for you and for your descendants. And he says, I will be for you and I will be against those who are against you. He says, I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you, I will curse. Abram, you don't have to fight your own battles. Abram, you don't have to make sure that this promise comes to fulfillment. I will do it. I will ensure that it happens. And the result of all of this is not only that Abram will be blessed, but also that he will be a blessing, that all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in and through him. And again, when we read chapter 12 back to back with chapter 11, what did God do last week, right? Because of, the nation, because of what, what those people at Babel did in their arrogance and their pride, he scattered the nations, right? Judgment on the nations, But now God says, I'm going to bring blessing to those nations through you, Abram, and through your descendants. This is God's will. This is his desire. God intends to bring blessing to the world through his servant Abraham, through the nation Israel that would come through his descendants, and specifically through the Messiah who would one day be born through his lineage. Now, this is a watershed moment. I can't overemphasize how important this singular moment is Not only in the life of Abram, but throughout the whole Bible and throughout the rest of history. The promise of God, this promise of God will now drive everything forward. John Stott says this about Genesis 12. He says, it may truly be said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, 
but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of the promises to Abraham. You catch that? The rest of the Bible is about the fulfillment of these promises. To read and understand the rest of the Bible means tracing the development and the fulfillment of these promises to Abraham. We see here that God is the initiator of this great and gracious promise. He speaks into the darkness and gives the light of hope through his word. God's the initiator of the promise. But secondly, there's a second lesson we learn through this, that we must respond to God's promise in faith. We must respond in faith. We see Abraham as the prime example of this, verses 4 through 6. So, after receiving the word of the Lord, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. For Abram, this was a promise that God made that was yet unfulfilled. It was a promise that was to be fulfilled in the future, and it would not be fulfilled apart from his obedience. Faith would be required to step out and obey. God had sovereignly chosen Abram to further his purpose in the world, but Abram had to respond. He would not be shown a land. He would not be He would not become a great nation. He would not be a blessing to the nations if he stayed put. If he didn't put one foot in front of the other, if he didn't leave his father's house and leave his country and leave everything that was familiar and go. But notice the words of verse 4. Abram went. He obeyed. He obeyed the command of God. This is why it says in Hebrews 11 verse 8, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The New Testament holds up the obedience of Abraham as the prime example of faith. Faith in the promises of God. Not just thinking it was true in his mind, but believing it was true. Believing it so much that he was willing to step out in faith. Not because he could see, but because he believed. Abraham obeys, demonstrating faith in the word of the Lord and obedience to the will of the Lord. Like Noah before him, he hears the word of God and he does all that the Lord commands him. Notice the emphasis on his obedience in verses four through five. It says, Abraham went as the Lord told him. Abram departed in verse four. Abram took his household. And it says, they set out to go to the land of Canaan and they came to the land of Canaan. There's a big emphasis here on his obedience, that he hears the word of the Lord and he obeys. What a beautiful picture of faith. Makes us ask ourselves some questions about our own lives, doesn't it? You know, unbelief, Unbelief says, you need to write your own story. You need to determine your own limitations. You need to determine your own dreams, your own goals, your own plans. You need to create your own destiny. And you know what this always leads to? As we read the Bible, it always leads to sorrow and grief and judgment. That's the path of unbelief. But the path of faith says, embrace God's story for you. Accept the limitations that he places on you. 
Receive the mission and the call that he gives you to live out. Live out the destiny and the purpose that he determines. Commit to his purposes. And this leads to blessing. When they arrived there in Canaan, we see in verse 5, it says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. When they arrive at this land that God is showing him, the Canaanites are there. This land is occupied. It's occupied. And it's a land ruled by pagan idolatry. The Oak of Moreth, these, these pagan Canaanites would set up shrines at these trees. There they would sacrifice to their false gods. Abram has come into an, a territory that's occupied, and it is spiritually hostile. But Abram is there in faith. Do you remember the curse on Canaan, the youngest son of Ham, back at the end of the, the story of Noah? These people are destined to be displaced. Their idolatry is going to be overthrown. Abram's obedience to go to Canaan, though occupied and though spiritually hostile, reveals faith in the promise of God. I'm here, God. I'm going where you tell me to go. Even though circumstantially this doesn't look like the most likely place for me to end up. God is the initiator of the promise, but we must respond to God's promise and faith, and Abram does exactly that. But third, Faith in the promise of God pulls us into a relationship with God. When God speaks and offers these promises, when man responds in faith and obeys and steps out, what you have there is a relationship. Faith in the promise pulls us into relationship with God. Look in verses 7 through 9. So Abram is there. He's in Canaan, even though it's occupied. He's there by this pagan shrine at the Oak of Morah, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the, on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Amazing thing happens once Abram finally gets to Canaan. In verse 1, we saw that God speaks to Abram, which is amazing, that God would, would reveal himself through his spoken word to this man. But now notice what happens in verse 7. Then the Lord, he not only speaks, but what does he do? You can look at your Bibles. He shows himself. He appears. He reveals himself to Abram. Just as the call in verse 1 was grace, as that promise was grace, so appearing to Abram is grace. Again, read this in light of what's already happened in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve had been exiled from the garden. They could no longer be in God's presence. Though he used to walk with them and talk with them, they had been sent away. And an angel had been placed there at the gate to guard them from reentry. Though man had been exiled from the garden, what we see here is that God had followed man into exile. God had walked with Enoch. God had spoken to Noah. And now he appears to Abram. God is pursuing man in order to save and bless and redeem. This is grace. And his face-to-face -face interaction with Abram shows that this is a relationship now 
It's a relationship. It says it is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, who appears. This is not just the, t- the, the title of God. This is the divine name of Yahweh, the personal God who enters into covenant with his people. And what the Lord says face to face to Abram in verse 7 is that to your offspring I will give this land. He says this is the land. The land that he had promised to show him, he now promises to give him. So the promise is expanding. It's gaining more details. And he says specifically he's going to give it to his offspring. Now remember, Abram's wife was barren. She was childless. God says, listen, I'm going to give you this land. Not just show it to you. I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to give it to your offspring. You're going to have children. The promise is taking shape. It's coming into focus as more detail is emerging. The promise of land to his descendants eliminates Lot as the heir. I'm sure Abram assumed that that his nephew Lot, who was traveling with him, would be his de facto heir. He would be the one to inherit all of Abram's wealth and fame, and and God would fulfill his purposes through him. But no, God says, I'm going to give it to your offspring. It will be Abram's children and his children's children who would grow into a great nation and bring fame to his name and blessing to the nations. The promise of giving him land here, again, is the reverse of what's been happening. Adam and Eve were driven from the place of blessing. Cain was sent away into exile. The people at Shinar were scattered and sent away. But now Abram has been led to a land and promised possession of it. This is God's blessing. And like Noah, who received the promise of God after the flood, you know what Abram does? When God appears and says this to him, what's the first thing he does? He stops. And he builds an altar. He builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, verse 7. And he does this not just to offer sacrifice in that moment, to say, God, thank you. And I think if you and I were to to come face to face with the appearance of the Lord himself, we would know nothing else to do except worship. I mean, he's definitely doing that. He's worshiping in the moment. But what he's also doing is memorializing that place. And he's memorializing the words that were spoken there. There's this pagan shrine, this tree, but now there's also this this altar to the living God, the true God, the only God, the maker of heaven and earth, the God who makes and keeps promises. Abraham wanted to remember what God had said there, and he wanted everyone else to remember what God had said there as well. It's a memorial to God and to the enduring promise that had been spoken there. It's interesting here, Abram makes a memorial not to himself, like the people of Babel. He makes a memorial to God, to his name, for his glory. But then he keeps moving. He doesn't stay there. Though the land had been promised to Abram and his descendants, God has not yet fulfilled the promise, and so they have to keep going. Abram and his family, they were nomads. They were herdsmen, so they go from place to place. They keep moving, and as they keep moving... We see that this relationship with God is not just a one-way thing where God initiates and speaks, God initiates and reveals himself, but we now see that Abram himself starts responding back. He is engaging in this relationship with God when they get to Bethel and pitch their tent. He builds an altar there to the Lord and calls upon the name of the Lord. He seeks the Lord. We see that Abram's faith is no longer just a reactionary faith that responds to God. Abraham now is seeking God, 
worshiping God of his own initiative and calling on the name of the Lord. It's a faith that seeks and prays and honors the one that he serves. Calling on the name of the Lord is an expression of faith and trust. It's an expression of dependence and worship. And calling on the name of the Lord is the act of one who knows the Lord and who has been guaranteed salvation. We see this language in the New Testament as well. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the Apostle Paul quoting the prophet Joel. Those who call upon the name of the Lord have a saving relationship with the Lord. And that's what we see in the life of Abram. In James chapter 2, verse 23, James writes that the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, there's his faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. No longer an idol worshiper, no longer a stranger to God who lives in a foreign land worshiping idols, Abraham now is a man of faith who is a friend of God who receives the word of the Lord, who speaks with the Lord face to face, and who worships and honors the Lord. This is the man that God promised blessing and promised to bring blessing through him to all the earth. The blessing of Abraham would eventually lead to the establishment of the nation Israel and eventually to the birth of the Messiah. It's through the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that the blessing promised to Abraham comes to us. Listen to what Galatians 3.14 says. Galatians 3.14 says that in Christ Jesus, the son of David, the descendant of Abraham, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles so that we receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, the faith that Abraham demonstrated is also faith that we must demonstrate as well. And the promise is that if we respond to the promises of God in faith, that we receive blessing, specifically the promised spirit, salvation, a relationship with God where he dwells with us, he knows us, and we know him. In Jesus, we receive great blessing. We receive the forgiveness of sin. We receive a new heart. We experience reconciliation with God. We're granted eternal life. We receive a future home and inheritance in the new heaven, the new earth, citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem. In Jesus, we become God's family. And as we enter into this relationship with God through faith in Christ, God is for us. And he's against our enemies. The blessing of Abraham comes to us when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We experience blessing. We receive this gracious gift the same way Abraham did, through faith. Through faith. God speaks to us today, not audibly, not appearing face to face, but he speaks to us today through his word. And you and I have a decision to make. Will we believe and will we respond Galatians 3.6 says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith today who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, that he would save and declare righteous the Gentiles by faith, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abram, Abraham, saying, In you all the nations, in you shall all the nations be blessed. In Galatians, Paul says that this promise to Abraham is a preview of the gospel itself. This blessing comes to us 
through what Jesus has done in his death and his burial and his resurrection. So the question is for you today, do you believe? Do you believe in the promises of God that are offered to us through Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and resurrection? Will you obey? Will you step out and follow Jesus regardless of the cost, regardless of the risk, regardless of the uncertainty, regardless of the difficulty? Friends, this is what God calls us to. He called Abraham to believe and to obey and to go. He calls us today to believe and to obey and to follow. Friends, this is the only path to salvation. This is the only way to receive the blessing of God. Salvation comes through faith in the promises of God. You know, the call to Abraham in Genesis 12 has a lot in common with the call to discipleship in the New Testament. You know, as we read the Gospels, we meet a man named Peter and his brother Andrew, and they're fishing. They're with their boats. They're running their business. Jesus says, follow me. They leave behind the nets. They leave behind the boats, and they follow Jesus. He speaks to James and John, also fishermen. They leave everything behind. They leave their father and his business And they follow Jesus. We meet Matthew, sometimes called Levi, the tax collector. He's sitting there at his post, crunching the numbers. And Jesus says, you follow me. And he leaves it behind to follow Jesus. Simon, the zealot, must leave behind his political cause and follow Jesus. The apostle Paul, before he was an apostle, had to leave behind his career and his reputation as a leading Pharisee and follow Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a genuine disciple of Jesus. We are called to go, to follow follow Christ. God calls us to embark on a journey of faith. We're not headed to an earthly land. We're following a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we may have to leave behind what is familiar. For you to demonstrate faith in Christ might mean that you have to leave behind what is comfortable. For you to demonstrate genuine faith in Jesus Christ may mean That you you have to leave behind what is safe, what is predictable. We may be unsure of how it will all work out. There may be cost involved. There may be great sacrifice involved. There may be great risk involved. That's what it means to take up your cross and to lose your life in order to save it. We may be unsure of how it will all work out in this life, but we can be sure that God is faithful to keep his promises, that God will do what he promises to do. So faith will mean stepping out in obedience because you believe the promise of God. The promises we've been given are salvation, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that you can be forgiven and cleansed through faith in Christ. The promise we are given is one of resurrection, that though we may die physically, one day God will raise up to eternal life all who have believed In Jesus. The promise of Jesus is that He will never leave us or forsake us, that He will be with us to the end of the age. 
Do you believe this? Are you responding to these promises in faith? You know, the good news this morning is that God is the one who promises to act and to do and to accomplish all of these things on our behalf. We have one singular command, one singular responsibility, and that is faith. It's to believe. God is the one who will accomplish all that is required. He always keeps his promises, and he is faithful to the end. I mentioned earlier that the rest of Scripture is the outworking of these promises. As you read your Bibles, watch for these themes. Because what you will see is that throughout the rest of Scripture, God is keeping this promise. He brings children to the old couple, Abraham and Sarah. He preserves their family through many dangers and risks. He blesses a growing nation, delivers them from slavery, brings them to this land, drives out their enemies, upholds this nation as kings come and go, as empires rise and fall, and ultimately he brings Jesus Christ, the divine baby born of a virgin who brings blessing to the world through his death and resurrection. You can trust him. He always keeps his promises. Every page of scripture shows this to be true. So trust him with all your heart. Trust him in your praying. Trust him in your living. Trust him in your dying. Salvation comes through faith in the promises of God. Because of God's sovereign choice and gracious blessing of Abraham, we receive great blessing today. And we can know that. We can know that. Because of what God has done through Abraham, all the nations today are being blessed. And we are simply a small sample of that. Because of what God has done through Abraham and ultimately through Jesus, today a multitude across the earth sings the great song of Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. He is faithful and he keeps his promises. Let's believe and let's obey and let's walk in faith. God in heaven, we thank you for your great grace that though we are a people trapped in a cycle of sin and judgment of death, you've interrupted that cycle to speak blessing and hope and salvation into the world. Because of what you've done through Abraham in bringing Jesus we can be blessed. We can have a relationship with you. We can know you, have our sins forgiven, be granted life. And we have a Father who loves us, a Savior who walks with us, a Spirit who dwells in us. And you are for us. You will vindicate our names one day. Even though persecution comes, even though suffering happens, there's a day coming when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will receive a great inheritance. The mouths of our enemies will be stopped and your name will be lifted up over all the earth. Lord, we look forward to that day and we pray that as we wait, as we run the race, that we would do so in faith. Help us, Lord, grow our faith, strengthen our faith. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that we might glorify your name. We pray this all in his name. Amen.